Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. In this episode of The New Arab Voice, we want to highlight the struggles that many LGBTQIA plus individuals are going through during the coronavirus pandemic. We'll be speaking to members of LGBT advocacy organizations in Lebanon and in Tunisia to understand how they are adapting their activities to provide aid to their communities even during a pandemic. Then we will speak to Sabah Choudhury, a trans youth worker who will highlight the unique struggles facing the trans community and their relationship to the Islamic faith. Finally, Anika Choudhury will explore why the feelings of isolation and loneliness many of us are experiencing during the lockdown are not new for the Muslim LGBT community. But first, the basics. We use the acronym LGBT throughout this episode to refer to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans individuals, but also to all other individuals who subscribe to non-heterosexual and non-binary conformities. Trans is an umbrella term to describe people whose gender is not the same as or doesn't sit in line with the sex they were assigned with at birth. Queer is also a term that will come up, and Stonewall.org defines it as a term which describes those wanting to reject specific labels of romantic orientation, sexual orientation, and or gender identity. Although some view the word as a slur, it was reclaimed in the 80s by the LGBT community. Oppression, discrimination, and persecution are very real consequences of merely wanting to love and be your true self in much of the Middle East and North Africa. Many members of the LGBT community in the region and in the West who share the region's heritage still have to conceal their identities in order to survive in a system which doesn't want them to live and celebrate their existence. Consistent opinion polls have found that most people in the region believe homosexuality is unacceptable. In 2019, a study commissioned by BBC Arabic and conducted by the Arab Barometer Network found that there were people who were more likely to believe honor killings were acceptable than people who tolerate homosexuality. In Jordan, 93% of those surveyed rejected the existence of LGBT people in society. Even in relatively liberal Tunisia and Lebanon, more than 90% of people surveyed said they found same-sex relations unacceptable. Only Algeria, Morocco, and Sudan had relatively higher levels of tolerance. But still, less than 30% of respondents there expressed tolerance for the LGBT community. Russia Yunus is based in Lebanon, and she's an LGBT researcher for the Middle East and North Africa at Human Rights Watch. There are different concerns for different people based on an intersectional kind of system of identities that they are placed in. So in different countries, we have different concerns. In Lebanon, for example, depending on someone's class, power, and someone's gender identity, someone's um, ability, someone's sect, because those are the kind of the dominant systems of power in the country, um, they may be facing different kinds of marginalization. Security forces have been cracking down on 
organizing around gender and sexuality in general for the past couple of years, since 2017, really. Another concern is the structural marginalization that certain people face, specifically trans people in the country, where every kind of step, every turn is a different form of discrimination that they would face in society. Even though legal gender recognition is allowed, it is um, impeded by uh, many, many obstacles and high legal fees and uncertainty around the law. So trans people don't actually have access to legal gender recognition, even though they are allowed to undergo gender affirming services. Russia, whose job is to monitor injustices targeting the LGBT community, says although each country has different circumstances, many countries share structural similarities in the ways in which they marginalize the LGBT community. Obviously, the criminalization across the region is a huge issue and how homophobia is a state-sponsored agenda in a lot of ways. And in different states, this plays out differently. In Egypt, for example, the morality war that that is ongoing right now um, kind of weaponizes LGBT rights as an immoral threat to society. So security forces, as well as government officials, as well as ministries, also mobilize that to further marginalize LGBT people. Security forces detain them and subject them to torture. Egypt and security forces and the government in general have been cracking down on any NGOs, especially LGBT organizations working in the country. Now, these services very much operate underground if they operate at all. In Qatar, there's a complete uh, silencing of sexuality in general, but specifically um, LGBT identities in which people do not even feel safe to speak out or even identify or come out as LGBT. In Iraq, we see that the kind of decentralized governance in the country where uh, militia groups and extremist groups have power to exert on vulnerable individuals, including LGBT people. We see killings, we see murders that go unquestioned. She believes that although many blame religion for the rampant homophobia around the region, the roots of discriminatory laws can in fact be traced to the colonial powers who came to dominate the Middle East from the late 19th century until the end of the Second World War. We know of a lot of people and we also work with a lot of people, a lot of activists who are both religious and LGBT. I would say that the way LGBT identities are weaponized by states is the problem because homosexuality has existed in Islam and in humanity and in the history of the region since the beginning of time. There was poetry about it, there was discourse around it, it was very much normalized as part of society, and then came colonialism, and then came legislation, and this legislation reinforced that quote-unquote unnatural relations are criminalized. And those unnatural relations became identified in our modern world as same-sex relations, which some governments have pushed forward because it serves their own conservative agenda to kind of alienate a group of people who are already a minority, who are already questioned and whose morality is already kind of a public topic. And this is concretized through legislation, through security forces, through ministries that are supposed to provide equal services to all, but they actually discriminate and ostracize certain people on the basis of their perceived or actual sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression even. In the 19th century, the British government introduced new penal codes that punished all homosexual behavior. Of more than 70 countries that criminalize homosexual acts today, many are former British colonies. After independence, only Jordan and Bahrain did away with such penalties. When Islamic fundamentalism reemerged in the 1980s, the gay rights movement in the West was rising. 
To the fundamentalist camp, homosexuality was seen as a Western concept, and politicians in the Middle East weaponized the issue and used the LGBT community as scapegoats for anti-Western sentiments. As recently as 2018, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, an Islamist political group based in Lebanon, said the West was exporting homosexuality to the Islamic world. His words seem to echo Iran's fundamentalist leaders who sponsor this group, in warning of a ravaging moral decay from the West's ideology. On top of all the everyday variety of discrimination against them, the LGBT community now face another risk to their well-being, a life-threatening virus. Russia says although many people in the region will be affected by the pandemic, states must not forget the most vulnerable. In times of crisis, LGBT people around the world are usually silently hit. Um, in the Middle East and North Africa region, the combination of criminalization, gaps in data, um, and other kind of systemic marginalization that LGBT people face means that vulnerable groups and LGBT people's vulnerabilities are not addressed. Um, these states around this region have an obligation to bridge these gaps and use any emergency international assistance that they're getting at the moment uh, to expand on the emergency programs for those in need, including LGBT people. Um, we're not seeing any end in sight to this crisis and kind of entire systems now are being reimagined and through this reimagination of um, an inclusive society and a resilient economy that can deal with these crises in the future, the needs of the most affected have to be considered and LGBT people are among the most affected. In the Middle East and the Arab and Muslim world, the medieval period and early modern age saw a flourishing of homoerotic literature. Shusha Guppy wrote about how Western travelers to the region were amazed to find Islam a sex-positive religion. In some enclaves of the Ottoman Empire, the notions of gender and sex were much more fluid, with women often fashioning mustaches and men casually wearing women's clothing. Citizens would gather to be astounded and entertained by a myriad of drag performances. Even later, in the 19th and early 20th century, homosexuality was widespread in the region. Writers like Oscar Wilde made pilgrimages from homophobic Europe to Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, and various other countries where they claimed homosexual sex was not met with discrimination. So although the contemporary Middle East is perceived as being innately conservative, it actually has a long history of LGBT activism and relative tolerance. However, in many circumstances, the region hasn't made much progress from those days, and oppression and neglect continue to ravage a community, which might now suffer even more greatly due to the threat of the coronavirus. Many in Lebanon have fought to end the use of Article 534 of the Penal Code, which is used to prosecute consensual same-sex interactions. According to Human Rights Watch, the law has colonial roots, as it was put in place by the French Mandate authorities which governed Lebanon between the two world wars. It has been used to persecute LGBT people, especially vulnerable groups, such as transgender women and Syrian refugees. Anything related to sex in Lebanon is faced with uh, discrimination and prejudgment. There is a huge uh, stigma around uh, HIV in Lebanon simply because HIV is linked to sex, and sex is 
in a way, in a country ruled by uh, religious figures. This is Bertho, the director of Proud Lebanon, an advocacy group providing resources for the LGBT community in Lebanon. Proud Lebanon is one of the organizations lobbying against Article 534. It started as a small initiative in 2013 to help LGBT refugees, but now it serves all members of the community with psychosocial and medical support. They also support prisoners and detention centers, and they are one of the main partners of the National AIDS Program in Lebanon, which is supported by the World Health Organization. In 2014, they became aware that many of their beneficiaries were being diagnosed with HIV and decided to assist them with medication, testing, and counseling. They also have an HIV support group and outreach activities and are currently helping 160 people suffering from HIV. One of Proud Lebanon's main services is to provide them with medication from the National AIDS Program discreetly, with HIV patients still stigmatized in the country and the region. During the coronavirus pandemic, Proud Lebanon says they have sought to adapt their services according to the needs of their community and have organized task forces of volunteers to deliver medication to people with HIV who cannot or will not leave their homes during lockdown. HIV patients are at high risk from COVID-19 due to their weakened immune systems, and many are worried about their health. Bertha said that some patients who had disappeared after being diagnosed with HIV have now reappeared to ask for help. If the person don't want to take his medication, we cannot force him. However, we try to we try our best to remain in contact and so on. I can give you an example of a trans individual. She was diagnosed two years ago and she disappeared. So I kept on like every time and then contact her, double check on her and see how she's doing. And now because of COVID-19, she got scared simply because she's right to be scared, you know, because her immunity is very low. So she decided to do her tests to start her treatment. And, uh, you know, this has been like a success story for me. Even though, you know, we are supposed to stay at home, I have a responsibility toward the people we are working with to go out, go to the ministry, get the medication and make sure to, to, to give it to the, to the people living with HIV on time. So no one would stop their treatment, no matter what. Proud Lebanon's work, like many in the region, has increasingly been affected by the pandemic and has stretched the organization's resources thin. While funding uh, has been affected a lot, uh, all the money now is switched to fight corona. For now, we just provide one-on-one services, uh, like uh, testing, and uh, we provide the medication. Otherwise, everything else has been switched to our uh, hotline where we provide the support uh, one-on-one over the phone, so remotely. We've seen, in fact, a lot of problems. And now we are hoping to be able to raise some money to help the most vulnerable within the LGBTI community and the people living with HIV. Because these people are usually the ones that are um, living in the shadows. No one sees them in the society. Uh, A lot of them are being rejected by their families. They live alone. Uh, I have like some trans uh, communities, some trans individuals that approached us asking for food because they cannot work. So they just want to eat and they are unable to go out from their houses. 
Bertha says that he has also witnessed a spike in people seeking support for their safety and mental health. We're receiving more and more people calling us, asking us for protection, uh, simply because they are being beaten by their parents because they are LGBTs. Imagine we have a mature man called us last week asking for our intervention. He's 32 and his father keep on beating him simply because he can't accept him being gay. And in Lebanon, it's different than in the West. Usually we remain with our families until supposedly when we get married. And especially if you are not educated and you don't have the financial means to move out, you will keep on facing this struggle of being obliged to stay with your parents. So you will have to accept by the norms they impose on you. Bertho, along with everyone who is working with Proud, are risking their own health to help those who are most vulnerable. He says that he strongly hopes the community can push through this difficult time and continue to hoist each other up until things return to normal. No matter what, love yourself. Don't let any issue make you lose hope in a better tomorrow. Keep on fighting because you deserve to be happy, you deserve to be loved, and you deserve the best. Uh, If your parents rejected you, that's because they lack awareness and there is a lack of, of education. When it comes to COVID, it's true that we need to be isolated socially, but you are not alone. Always remain in contact with the NGOs, you know, with your friends, with the members of your family that's still in contact with you. Don't isolate yourself because this will lead you to depression and will lead you to severe mental health issues. Support one another and remain strong. One of the most vulnerable subgroups of the LGBT community are trans people who are now facing even more restrictions on access to healthcare, increased social stigma, and growing health risks due to the coronavirus outbreak worldwide. According to the U.S. National Center for Transgender Equality, LGBT people suffer from higher rates of HIV and cancer, which leads them to have compromised immune systems. According to a 2015 U.S. trans survey, trans people are five times more likely to be living with HIV compared to the general population. Meanwhile, fear of discrimination keeps many trans people from going to the doctor, with now an added risk of catching the coronavirus while visiting a clinic. Due to supply chains being disrupted as a result of the pandemic, many trans people are complaining they are running out of the hormones that they depend on. Many have also had to postpone gender reassignment surgeries due to the overworked healthcare systems. The UK has labelled these as non-essential, meaning they lose priority even though they are vital for many. Individuals can already wait up to three years to see a gender specialist in the UK, and may now have to wait even longer while this pandemic overshadows every aspect of their lives. Hormones can affect the mental well-being of trans individuals by decreasing depression and gender dysphoria and improve their quality of life. So delays in surgeries or medication can be life-threatening for a variety of reasons, including the higher risk of suicide in the trans community. Hey, my name is Sabah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, or he, him, his sometimes. I am a trans youth worker. I've been supporting trans young people for over five years now. And uh, I've recently gotten involved with Inclusive Mosque Initiative, which is um, based in London, working to kind of host and hold prayer spaces and spaces for conversations around Islam that are 
inclusive and kind of feminist and have a you know gender liberated approach currently doing some therapeutic work with it within mostly uh lgbtq bme communities so that keeps me pretty busy this is saba they are currently based in london in the uk where they are working as a trans youth worker training as a psychotherapist and caring for their dad they spoke with me on the difficulties many members of the trans community in britain are facing under quarantine are you perceiving the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown and the quarantining has affected uh, the LGBT community? It's really tough, um, which feels actually like an understatement. I feel like it might be better to talk about like what the benefits of having those physical spaces for our trans young people to come to is, because then I feel like we can only really understand like how much they're losing when now we've had to go digital and reduce our services massively. So for a trans young person, they might have just recently come out or just start figuring out their identity, but they can come to our youth groups and have the freedom to wear whatever they want to you know use whatever name or pronoun they want they can they can change their clothes or change change their mind about everything throughout our session it's just like this holding space where they can do that and they're going to be respected and heard and accepted and just not questioned about that and that can be such a lifeline when their home environment or their school environment or their employer might not be understanding at all so it's amazing like the transformation in like a three-hour youth group from like the start where someone's really anxious and then at the end they're just like have this confidence that they can carry with them like in whatever spaces they're navigating so the fact that we've had to go digital and you know close our youth centers and not be able to even deliver our youth work some of it it's been challenging and i think for many lgbt people not having that space where you can just be yourself is it's kind of heartbreaking a lot of young people they might be facing isolation at home that they're the only they might be living alone or they might be in a home environment which isn't supportive and there's a real fear of like okay now they're, they're going to be within that whether it's toxic or violent or unaccepting um it's really going to have a huge toll on their mental health and we can't really do what we we're doing to kind of support that we're doing as much as we can we're, we're holding youth groups online which is is also quite exciting because it does open up other avenues in terms of making our youth work more accessible to people who couldn't come to our physical spaces for example how have you been living through this and, and why is it so important to talk about mental health when it comes to the trans community so um, a lot of trans young people who come to our services are often kind of struggling with similar issues around um, confidence and not really knowing who they are and having the space to explore that. And we just provide the space to do that. And uh, I guess, it, you know, we're in a world and a society which doesn't usually understand um, our identities, our gender in the way that we do sometimes and the way we want to express ourselves well society is just built for you know one gender or another male and female or man and woman or boy and girl and when you don't really fit within that binary then that's where you, you really feel the the struggle and the challenge to say how you feel or be accepted and it's it's an everyday thing um i think being trans isn't like the biggest part of my life but it is something that you know i do think about every day because i'm navigating gender every day in, in really little ways so maybe we could talk about the lgbt community within the realm of islam and maybe how you've managed to reconcile your faith with your identity yeah, yeah, definitely. How I managed to reconcile my faith and my 
uh, queer and trans identity is a is a big question. Um, I don't I don't even know if I think it is still like fully reconciled or or even that I kind of want it to be reconciled and have this you know kind of very like together feeling or something that's very in sync. I think that there's always going to be different parts of my identity like gender, sexuality, faith, and everything also outside of that that's going to keep changing over time and what really helped me reclaim like calling myself a muslim because i yeah i was raised muslim then i had my um atheist phase when i was um uh younger and so i talk about reclaiming islam um and reclaiming um calling myself a muslim into something that actually means something to me what helped that was just having space to have those conversations, which were really hard. Realizing that the Islam that I was taught is not really the Islam that, it's not one that would accept me or one that I really believe in either. That's actually because it's been taught by people who who are sharing their own beliefs through Islam, or um, it's, it's maybe more about a culture that kind of gets kind of blended with religion. Once I started learning about Islam for myself or reading um, Islamic texts and words from people who weren't just men, you know, reading Islam through the eyes of other LGBT Muslims, um, women and queer and trans people, it really spoke to me. It, it was, I, I could see like, actually, this is what Islam is and what I think it should be and how I want that to feel. I think Islam is about all of it. It's about that doubt and about that kind of like moving along and uncertainty, because that means when you have that, you start to figure out the answers for yourself. I mean, I don't think I have answers, but I'm more comfortable with having those questions and knowing that having the answers and knowing everything isn't actually what it means to, for me to be a Muslim either. Have you found support or people to lean on in, in your religious community as well? Yeah, um, I have a really strong group of other queer and trans Muslims around me. We all are so different. Like, I think probably if you asked us what what we think, how you know how we feel about being Muslim, we have like such different answers. But I'm not really looking for like a community that looks the same. You know, finding a place like Inclusive Mosque Initiative as well was really eye-opening. I think it was like maybe four years ago. I went to um, their Inclusive Jumma um, Friday prayers, and uh, they had everyone praying together. And it didn't matter. There wasn't any um, gender segregation, and there was a lot more flexibility about how people were praying. I mean, it was really scary. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna say it was it was amazing. It was really scary because it was like this is completely new this is a whole new model of you know what islam is and and what does that mean I, and then i just had to like kind of like figure out how to place myself within that and actually like find a place within that and i just think how they hold their islamic practice is is so inspiring how they you know really talk about power and liberation and really center that in all of their events is so it's, it's really beautiful because you see then what happens and you see this wonderful community of muslims and people who support us and you know i feel like how could you not have, have faith in that right now in this moment when public spaces and places of, of meeting and, and sharing are closed what would your advice be to someone who is you know maybe not comfortable with their sexuality or not comfortable with their gender or not comfortable with their faith and all of these three maybe intersecting what would your advice be to them right now 
It's a really tough one. I mean, usually my advice would be to reach out to, you know, all these different organizations and stuff. But we know that because of the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, um, there's been so many closures and losses to funding which is especially affecting lgbt charities and community groups because um our work is already poorly funded i know there's there's a huge stretch on all kinds of services so um we still have hubs and um like i said digital use support and you know remote working kind of helplines and stuff but i think it's a really testing time for i guess our own resilience and our own survival i guess i think for trans young people it's probably not something that's that's too unfamiliar in some ways. Having to find safe spaces like that and build them for ourselves because of uh, us being a quite a marginalised and isolated community. I think we've built up loads of resilience, especially how much we have to fight for our rights, especially when it comes to things like healthcare or um, the right to access certain spaces. So I think it's really about finding any little space you can find where you can be yourself or ask that question or share that anxiety or discomfort, whether that is a digital youth group, a a Facebook comment or an Instagram DM or message or something like that. I feel like we have to rethink what space is in that way. It's like this, this thing we can't really touch anymore. It's all digital, but hold on to it and curate that into something that feels safe and holds you. It's really important that we start really looking inside ourselves and thinking, okay, well, I've got it. I've made it this far. There is something in me that that can get through this. How can I protect that and how can I build up my resilience? Our community, our solidarity we have across our community is is huge. And I think now is a time where we can really like show that and use that to empower other people. Tunisia is said to be one of the most liberal countries in the MENA region, and yet homosexuality is still considered illegal and can be punishable for up to three years in prison. As recently as January, Munir Batur, a former presidential candidate and leader of Tunisia's largest gay rights group, said he was forced to leave the country and take refuge in France after he received quote-unquote very serious death threats. Enter Maujoudin, one of the handful of organizations dedicated to the welfare of the Tunisian LGBT community. Before the Tunisian Revolution of 2011 that ushered the Arab Spring and created an upheaval of the country's political system, the LGBT community had to work underground as they were not allowed to operate legally. Today, Maujoudin offers psychological services, counseling, legal support, and a 24-hour hotline, which are still vital tools for the mental well-being of queer people all over the country. Khaula Boaziz is only 20 years old and started volunteering with Maujoudin since 2018. She is now a project coordinator and advocates for LGBT rights within the United Nations. Obviously, being a community that's already criminalized and has limited access to everything, including healthcare, being put in the situation is obviously very hard. I think that the whole uh, lockdown situation and the fear and the state of anxiety that the pandemic has brought with it, it's putting the community in a very difficult situation where many are suffering. For example, the Maujoudin office, it used to be also a space where people could meet and do all these activities, have fun together and feel like they belong to a community. Now that we cannot do that anymore, there is like restriction and the lack of that space is very visible and it's felt. 
What we're trying to do right now um, is to continue doing these activities online and to try to still be engaged through social media and, you know, to make the community and the members and people that usually found a safe haven in us or in other organizations like us to keep feeling that way. Khawla has been in touch with many who are trapped at home, with families that might never accept their sexuality or gender nonconformity. Nevertheless, she says many are trying to come out in a world where they are told to stay in. Tunisia, I think, generally we tend to look progressive between many brackets compared to many other countries in the region or with similar history. But at the same time, when we come down to it, when we look at the societal norms and the laws and everything else, there's not much difference. Uh, It's still a pretty conservative society in many things. And that obviously affects the queer people who are now stuck at home because that's the general mentality of the people. The people that actually are tolerant and accepting are a very small minority. And considering that we, most of us are stuck with families of older generations, um, that automatically means for many of us that we're basically in a queer phobic environment. And being on lockdown and not having the usual space to air out and to, you know, let go of the stress and everything, many people tend to try to come out, try to do anything um, to feel uh, freer, let's say, in the in that restricted environment. And we've been uh, seeing that a lot happening. Many people try to come out to siblings or families just because they're on lockdown and they have nothing else to do. And uh, in many cases, like most cases, that goes very uh, negatively. Many people either try to come out or hint to it um, because uh, also if we consider the situation of many trans individuals or people whose gender expressions are not conforming, uh, they, and especially like if they've lived independently before and now they find themselves in this situation, it's like having to act all over again. They need to come out, otherwise it will affect their mental health. Coming out ends up being even worse. I've heard few cases of basically verbal violence, especially um, in households that are male-dominated. But other than that, official reports haven't been uh, filed yet. According to my colleague who's working on the hotline, that many more people are calling just to talk. Uh, which wasn't usually like the current case. Usually people call for certain situations. There is something that needs to be solved. But right now, with the quarantine, more and more people are just calling to talk, to have a conversation, basically. She explains that if the coronavirus pandemic were to continue, the well-being of the LGBT community might become even more at risk. I believe that the biggest damage would be to mental health before everything else because the situation like the longer members of the community are locked within these abusive situations the worse it will get for their mental health and the worse it gets for their mental health the less there is accessibility to any kind of treatment because of the lockdown itself Uh, even the usual psychological supports that the organizations used to provide are no longer there And it becomes more and more of a heavy charge on the organizations to deal with the situation online or via phone calls. 
Even without government support and acceptance from the wider community, organizations like Proud Lebanon and Maujoudin are changing their services to help the most vulnerable in any way they can. The internet and social media has thankfully made this much easier, but with dwindling economic and medical resources around the world, how much longer must the most vulnerable wait to be accepted and supported? Anika Choudhury is a British-Pakistani freelance writer based in Manchester. She wrote a poignant piece for The New Arab last month entitled The Loneliness of Being Queer, explaining how alienation and isolation of the kind we feel today because of the coronavirus lockdown is actually not a new emotion for many in the LGBT community. Over the phone, she explained to me why being a Muslim and queer made her feel even more conflicted about coming out. So um, I guess we can start with why you decided to entitle your piece The Loneliness of Being Queer and Muslim. I think because it is lonely, because especially with increasing Islamophobia across the world, you would think the one place that Muslims can be safe is with other Muslims. But for queer Muslims, we're very alienated from the rest of the community. And this is for the ones who have come out. But I've spoken to a lot of people over the years who haven't come out and haven't been able to talk to their families because they they know that they're not going to get a positive response. And I think that's incredibly lonely as well. I know that I spent at least three years not being able to come out even to myself let alone to my family and you're just rejecting a huge part of yourself um so I entitled it the loneliness of being queer and muslim is because it feels like we're not really accepted anywhere we're not accepted in the lgbt community because of our faith and we're not expect we're not accepted in the muslim community because of our sexuality how easy was it coming out to your parents? I was very lucky because my mum in particular, I spent years being too scared to come out to her, but when I came out to her, it was fine. <laughs> it was anticlimactic, really. The interesting part is why I was so scared to come out, even though she didn't react like badly at all. It is just because we don't discuss issues like that in the community. We don't even discuss that it's bad or that it shouldn't happen. We just don't discuss it at all as in as if stuff like that doesn't happen, which is why it's so terrifying to come out or even admit it to yourself. Because especially if you're not in contact with any of the queer Muslims or you haven't read any of the material, you think you're the first person who's going through this. When in reality, for centuries, other Muslims have been coming out as queer and realising that they're gay. So... I mean, that's a massive part of you. So how do you reconcile your faith with your sexuality? That's a really difficult question because for a long time I didn't. Um, The reason I suppressed it for so long is because I didn't believe that Muslims could be LGBT, which is ridiculous because there are billions of Muslims all over the world. So it'd be obvious that some of us would be LGBT. And it's really hard to... um, accept that part of yourself when you first come out because there isn't really a lot of material out there. I think there's more now than there was 10 years ago, especially in places like America and now the UK as well. But it's still seen as quite a a sort of a niche subject. I've spoken to so many people who said, wow, it's great to see another LGBT Muslim, but I don't think I'd be able to come out at any point. And I think in until we start speaking about this more often and there's more stuff, there's more material out there and there's more representation, I think a lot of people aren't going to come out just because they'll see themselves as 
an exception rather than a part of a community. I think that's what makes this period different from any other period for queer Muslims, is that we can connect to other queer Muslims across the world. But I, I still think that from the reactions I get from people even on social media, like how can you be queer and be a Muslim, that a lot of people haven't heard of it before. But I think that's going to change in the coming years because it's already changing. But like I said in the article, it's not changing fast enough for a lot of us. Um, and I think that can do a lot of damage. I knew it wasn't common for LGBT Muslims to come out in traditional spaces. But definitely before I went online, I didn't realise how many people seemed to actively hate us. You do get a lot of messages like telling you you're going like, to burn in hell and stuff. Um, so that was very difficult to deal with. A part of this is, is very beautiful because I guess like now you don't need to have much to be able to access that community online. Yeah. But obviously you're getting this backlash. So if you had an advice to young queer Muslims that haven't come out yet and who are your situation, what advice would you give to them when they're surfing online? I think advice I'd given to my younger self because mm. I didn't expect the backlash to be so strong when I was younger. So I would warn my younger self about that, but at the same time, I would have come out anyway. I just think the relief of being able to find other queer Muslims was indescribable compared to how lonely I felt before. But I do realise I'm in a much luckier position than a lot of LGBT Muslims just because my parents accept me for who I am. I'd say safety comes first rather than coming out. And I hate having to get that message. I'd love to be able to say, please, like tell everyone who you are and um, it's okay to be LGBT and Muslim but the reality is, is that a lot of the world isn't ready for us yet. Have you felt like you have to reevaluate your faith? That's an interesting question because even aside from the LGBT issues I think a lot of the way we're brought up learning about Islam culture is often mixed up quite a lot in teachings of it so a lot of things which you take to be Islamic are actually part of the culture you're brought up in. But you don't realise that when you're growing up, you realise it later when you go back to learn about the Quran, and then you realise something you were taught when you were a child isn't even in there. I think even if I hadn't realised I was bisexual, I still would have gone back to relearn everything that I was taught about being a Muslim. But in the case of LGBT, like I said, there aren't really enough resources. For example, Section 28 was... Um, a piece of legislation which was in place when I was growing up that says local authorities can't promote homosexuality. So LGBT issues weren't really taught in school, which I don't think helped with the whole being queer and Muslim situation because even for someone who wasn't a Muslim, I don't think it was a great time to be LGBT growing up anyway. If you don't teach about those issues in school, I think it's very easy for like homophobia and stuff to take root. As she is quarantining by herself, Anika seems to have resilience in her voice, that although there are unique struggles to being queer and Muslim, there are many others eager to find a community made up of people just like her. Find her full article, The Loneliness of Being Queer Muslim, on our website, thenewarab.co.uk. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa.